morning and welcome to Rising. Our quest continues, our quest being to deliver all the news that <laughs> the viewers need to hear about to them every morning of every day until we depart this good earth. <laughs> that long, Robbie? <laughs> that long? <laughs> You're in it for the long haul, Brianna. What are we talking about today? All right, well, Robbie, another batch of Epstein documents are out. Here's what you need to know. Newly unsealed deposition records from 2016 reveal Epstein accuser Virginia Gouffre told prosecutors that she was paid $15,000 to have sex with Prince Andrew in the 1990s. Gouffre also claimed she recall, uh, recalled at least two occasions where former President Bill Clinton visited Epstein's island and dined with young women. She could not confirm any sexual abuse on Clinton's part. However, when asked whether the pres former president was a witness to the sexual abuse of minors, Ms. Guifre said, yes, he would be a witness because he knew what my purpose there was for Jeffrey, and he visited Jeffrey's island. She added, there's pictures of nude girls all around the house at all of his houses, and it's something that Jeffrey Epstein wasn't shy about admitting to people. Guifre also reported seeing Donald Trump at Epstein properties, but again did not accuse him of abuse. Gaffrey did name other names as well. She said she was trafficked, made to have sex with former Victoria's Secret CEO Lex Wexner more than five times. She also said that she was made to have sex with at least two American politicians, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson and former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. She also named American businessman Glenn Dubin and former modeling agent Jean-Luc Brunel. And one other person whose name is still redacted in these documents, interestingly enough. Meanwhile, Epstein's brother, Mark, got into it with Leland Vittert on News Nation last night. Let's watch. There's very few people who knew him the way you did, and you hear all these allegations that he was providing women, uh, some of age, some not of age, to other men to compromise them. Uh, there's allegations of videotapes that have been recanted on and on and on, but does all that surprise you, or you hear about that and you kind of go, gee, there was always something about him that that is a brother, you go, that kind of makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense to me. I think he was just, like you said, he was just having a good time. Jeffrey liked to have a good time. And unfortunately, he chose there, to do it with well, Hold on. There, there, there's, a, I, there's a big difference, though, between I, I having... There. I wasn't there. So you're asking me to speculate, and I really don't want to speculate because I wasn't there. Okay. Uh, and look, I wouldn't want to know this. I don't have a brother, but I wouldn't want to know this about anybody I loved. I mean, the, the allegations are are frankly revolting when you when you hear about what your brother is accused of doing. On, on a personal level, I know this would be hard to hear about a, a family member. So I, I appreciate you being willing to discuss it with us. Um, and like you, um, I think there's a lot of people who want more answers. So uh, many of these, you know, names um, that we're seeing are, are names we've heard before. We've heard Bill Richardson before. Um, obviously, Jean-Luc Brunel is someone who I believe also mm -hmm. um, died of suicide in uh, prison. Um, and these other people, you know, names we've heard, um, you know, you can read in, in the filings where, um, where the witness, Virginia Gouffre, you know, is going through how many times it was. Um, has difficulty remembering exactly when it was and exactly what age she was at the time, um, but says that Bill Clinton was would have been aware of what was going on, though did not specifically witness it. Um, again, says Donald Trump there at at times, although there was no sexual activity with him. Um, you know, so a lot of what we've already heard, um, there is this redaction still in here, which is pretty remarkable because this is someone 
who she has accused, in, according to this filing, of sexual misconduct, like uh, not just being a witness or being around or something, but actually um, in engaging in um, illegal sexual activity with her. Yeah, look, on some level, this is getting in I I incredible to have to parse in this way, knowing what we already know about Epstein. And I think that interview with Epstein's brother really foregrounds how we're all kind of tiptoeing around the obvious. Jeffrey Epstein was convicted of procuring child, uh, children for pr prostitution and soliciting a prostitute back in 2008. He was a convicted right. sex offender for well over a decade before he ended up in jail, most recently, where he died. So that combined with testimony like Guifre's, where he, she's talking about how there were pictures of nude women all over his houses, that he wasn't afraid, shy about talking about his predilections, and the amount of time and the frequency with which these high-profile figures, whether it's Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, were at those properties and in proximity with Epstein, the way it's being discussed, it feels as though everyone should have known, especially given that people were continuing these relationships long after the point in time in which he was already a convicted ch child sex trafficker. So for the brother to sit there and be like, Mm, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. He's my brother. I wasn't there. I wasn't. You weren't there. You had no proximity and relationship to your brother, who apparently was so open about his habits that he had framed pictures of these women all around his house. You have Donald Trump being famously quoted as having said about Epstein. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Yeah, it's reminiscent of the fact that um, jokes were told about Harvey Weinstein, exactly. like at award ceremonies. Um, 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 uh, family Guy made a joke about it. Like for years and years, yes. there were jokes about him, and everyone kind of went, "Oh, ha, ha!" But they knew, so they knew, they knew on some level yes. that uh, what was going on. That's what it reminds me of. And Melinda Gates uh, separating from Bill Gates in part yeah. over her discomfort with their relationship. I mean, the yeah. and Bill Gates is frankly wall. one of the worst uh, offenders here in, in, in terms of continuing to associate with Epstein long after his, his criminal behavior was, was, no, was prosecuted, was, that he was convicted of, um, and continuing to have a business relationship with him, continuing to exchange um, emails. That's also true of these uh, couple officials at, um, at Bank of America and in the Virgin Islands, um, et cetera. So, yeah, it continues so, to be so lurid and horrible. Of that. I mean, it's not, it's just, not just because... having a good time. I'm glad Leland, of course, jumped on him for saying right. that, because it's right. not just having a good time, I mean, can like you you're imagine partying to are. These were underage girls. These he are went to, girls. Yeah. These are girls that were around. And apparently, according to, again, just as according to Guifrey, the purpose of their presence was known. Now, it's hard for me to imagine that wouldn't be the case. Why else would a bunch of 60-year-old men have some girl who is not their peer in business, in politics, in life, in any respect, around all of the time. Let's not act Pollyanna. Let's not act like we're, we were born yesterday. So, I mean, the implications of this are interesting because there is, on some level, even from Guifrey, she's saying, I cannot attest to these powerful people like Trump or Clinton having personally used the quote-unquote services, personally engaged in sex 
trafficking with these girls, use these girls who have sex trafficked for that purpose, have been sex trafficked for that purpose. However, and, and so the, the, the criminal element, this isn't a conversation about their criminal culpability, at least at this point. But I think there, that, that doesn't preclude having a conversation about what this means about society, what it means about the elite culture and the culture of protecting the bad habits and bad actions of the elites amongst, among us. If the, some of the most powerful people in the world, British royal family, who has been accused of actually engaging in these sex acts, are able to do so with a level of impunity that they are openly hanging out with a convicted sex offender yeah. for years without the press, without their other powerful peers, without anybody raising enough of a I stink mean, to put him into Jeffrey it. Jeffrey Epstein himself was able to do it with, without, with impunity at some level. He was prosecuted and then able, and then got a you know, a light sentence and house arrest, and then was able to get yes. right back at it. He was, he was able to lobby the government of the Virgin Islands to change their sex offender laws to make his life less inconvenient. Yeah. And That's it's, remarkable. And, and it's worth noting also that he got that sweetheart deal mm -hmm. from a prosecutor who ended up being Donald Trump's secretary of labor, right. who had to quietly step down when that came to light. But even that didn't have anywhere close to the level of fanfare that we're now engaging in over speculation about, say, Hunter Biden's business practices, I would argue that this is, merits at least as much scrutiny. Yeah, one more uh, thing I, I wanted to note. Yeah, I, I've covered a lot of um, um, sex crimes cases for um, uh, young people when they interact with um, social media. I used to cover just kind of school policies and school disciplinary matters more. And um, they're really f uh, sad, frustrating stories, you know, teens exchanging um, dirty Sexes. photos with each other. And if they're, you know, one is 16 and one is 17, it's different in every state. But uh, it can often count as child pornography. And you get these really harsh sentences and sex offender registration for kids who are engaging in, again, not, not you know, their parent. they can, should be grounded or something, but not, they're not sex criminals right. for having interest in people their own age. Um, but they get the book thrown at them. They get their lives wrecked. They get no access to electronics. Um, and these charges stick. They're hard to get around. So the idea that that people in that situation have no way out of, the, of, of a totally unfair but just rigidly applied um, uh, the, the law the way it's written, they're screwed. But the most powerful people, in, you know, accused of and then in Jeffrey Epstein's case, found guilty of disgusting transgressions of the law, yes. um, able to, it's a minor inconvenience. Yeah. It's incredible. It's very sad. Yes, one rule for the billionaire class, another rule for the rest of us, it seems. Stick around. We have more rising for you right after this. Breaking news, Hunter Biden made a surprise appearance at his own contempt of Congress hearing held by the House Committee on Government Oversight, and things got pretty crazy pretty fast. Congresswoman Nancy Mace accused the younger Biden of having no balls and having white privilege. Let's watch. Mr. Chairman, uh, Chairman Comer, um, first of all, my first question is who brought Hunter Biden to be here today? That's my first question. Um, second question, you are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here and... M Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman, if the gentle lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from Hunter Biden. What are you afraid of? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Order, order, order. Are women allowed to speak in here or 
or no? Are, okay. are women allowed to speak in here? Order. No, you keep interrupting me. I, I'll interrupt the you chairman. Keep interrupting. I don't know that he's a lady. I think that, uh, that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now, and go straight to jail. Our nation is founded on the rule of come law. Come on, come on. Hunter sat in the hearing room to hear much of the bickering between GOP members. However, once Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene began to speak, the anger Biden ducked out. Let's take a look. Gentlemen, time's expired. Chair, recognize Ms. Greene from Georgia for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, excuse going? me, Hunter. Apparently, you're afraid of my words. Whoa! Uh, <laughs> oh! I like to reclaim my time, Mr. Chairman. Wow, that's too bad. Now, as a reminder, Republicans wanted to have Hunter testify behind closed doors while Hunter insisted his deposition be held publicly. Biden previously gave the presser a presser outside the U.S. Capitol and defended his business record while denying accusations of any wrongful financial link to his father on the day he was originally set to testify. Looks like we're watching reality TV. It increasingly feels that way. Congress was uh, rated as one of the least productive Congresses of all time uh, this past year, but they certainly do have time for these reality TV show shenanigans. I, I want to ask you what you make of the strategic choice of Hunter Biden showing up here today. I mean, it seems like his decision to participate in the reality television experience. Um, I think it would be great for him to answer some questions um, pr uh, pu uh, publicly. I, so I agree that there's no reason to have this deposition in private when he has said he would be happy to do so in public. I think it will ultimately be totally fruitless because he will just decline to answer any questions. He'll plead the fifth, et cetera. But we could watch him go through that exercise. Um, he's not going to actually, it would be foolish to actually answer questions. No one really does. So there's not much that's going to come out of this um, either way. It seems like, you know what, this is just good, on some level, good optics, I guess, good politics for everyone, because Republicans want to look like they're they're going after Hunter. They're, you know, prosecuting Hunter um, verbally, if not actually doing anything to advance the investigation into whether there was some legitimate wrongdoing that involves Joe Biden. Um, you know, we're in a we're in a vibes-based political environment, <laughs> and those were some vibes there. I thought it was interesting, Nancy Mace, kind of just. Um, uh, appropriating woke ideas there. Oh, I was going to get to that. Somewhat cynically. She, she said both that Hunter Biden has white privilege and that how dare you interrupt a woman. A woman when she's speaking. Um, I don't know if that was kind of a sarcastic um, I'm sure, look, thing, the, but, the thing uh, is, I think it's starting out as sarcasm. Um, I think a lot of conservatives are trying to basically own the libs with their own language. But the more they keep doing it, the more, frankly, it feels sincere. Maybe the um, white privilege comment starts to feel a little, like, sarcastic. But by the time she got to, can a woman talk, that kind of felt organic in the way that I think when Nikki Haley is talking about having to do everything um, Ginger Rogers style and heels and backward, you know, mm -hmm. it's more difficult than what Fred Astaire had to do. That feels like very organic. And I think that I don't blame women in politics for having observed a double standard and wanting to talk about it. But I do uh, have concerns that conservatives who announce a distaste for that kind of politics and who support um, certain attacks on inclusive books and, and, and the like across the country some suddenly turn around and are happy to use that, uh, deploy that language in their own defense. Yeah, I would remind them that um, conservative voters 
ostensibly really dislike wokeness, and uh, it, there, I agree with you that there you can cross a line from mocking it to actually like appropriating it. That uh, is is going at some level, I think, is going to um, turn people off. Also, I should note that I think that the underlying principles are real, and my critique of liberal identity politics and conservatives who start to weaponize identity in these ways as well is that it's a bastardization of a real concept. There, of course, is racism and prejudice in this world. There are uh, there is discrimination in this world. People are discriminated on the basis of their names on hiring uh, applications and uh, housing applications. Um, there are disparities that are gender-based and race-based and the like. But a white person calling another white, telling another white person that they have white privilege, uh, or a woman cynically weaponizing that when she doesn't care about the interests or supports policies that many people would argue were against the interests of women across the country on a regular basis, right. that's the problem. The, the, the privilege that Hunter Biden has that should be interrogated is whether he used his Afterwards. status as a political exactly. scion to um, to enrich himself exactly. and then, more importantly, to, uh, to potentially indirectly leverage actual public policy. Um, that was why Ukrainians and Chinese business people were paying him, and whether that amounted to any actual influence on his father has not been proven. In. We have questions about it, and I think it is perfectly legitimate to continue investigating it fruitfully and productively, not just shouting at each other in the halls of Congress, although um, at least they're not busy raising my taxes, I guess. I was going to um, just weigh in earlier on the question of the strategic value of what uh, Hunter Biden did. I think when he showed up the last time and gave his speech outside of Congress, it was a demonstration that I am willing to submit for this and give this testimony. I am willing to submit for this deposition. I just want everything to be out in the open. And I think it, it gave him the higher hand. Republicans didn't really have a good response to it. There is no real good reason why they wouldn't want the deposition to be open. Right. Um, and Jim Jordan admitted he kind of had to, when he was asked about that on TV, he's like, well, we could do also do a public deposition. I'm like, OK. So right. you admit that this is that this uh, criticism has teeth. Yeah. So I, I think that was a, a good power move for Hunter Biden. This, choosing to go inside the chamber where Republicans are giving remarks, I think was a miscalculation, because it gives them an opportunity to shout things at you in a forum where you don't actually have the right to reply and defend yourself. So you're sitting there confronted with their characterizations of you, and I think it makes you look weak. And even if you were already planning to leave for reasons unrelated to what's being said, it does give the perception that you're running away from attacks that you're, quote, unwilling to respond to, when, in fact, it's obvious that he can't march to the front of the room and just start, you know, d defending himself in that way. So I do think it's, it's one of those kind of trial practice things where, you know, they say, don't ask a question that you're not going to know the answer to. Don't put yourself in a situation that is so uncontrollable like that. I think he should stick to taking a stand outside of the halls of Congress where you can talk to the press and not have to do a kind of one-sided faux deposition in a congressional setting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I agree. All right, we will continue to monitor any developments in the Hunter Biden saga and investigation. If, any, if there's any more incoherent shouting in the <laughs> Capitol, we'll let you know about it. More Rising right after this. Military veteran and Oath Keepers chapter president Ray Epps is free. Epps was sentenced to a year of probation for participating in the 2021 Capitol riots yesterday. Epps also received a $500 fine and ordered was ordered to serve 100 hours of community service. Last week, prosecutors had recommended six months of jail time for Epps. 
Reporter Greg Price wrote on X, Ray Epps, the only January 6th protester who actually told people to go into the Capitol, has been officially sentenced to one-year probation, $500 restitution, and 100 hours of community service. While many J6 protesters are rotting in jail for nonviolent crimes, Epps escapes a prison term entirely. Here's footage of Epps from that day. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! Meanwhile, new footage released by the Justice Department shows a heated exchange between two Republican congressmen and Capitol rioters on January 6th. Let's watch. I'm at the Capitol. Why is it not the building? We're trying to get in. We got the, the glass broken. These are all your patriots. And there's our house. There's our house. Our house. Our house. How do you handle this? Open the door, brother. How do you handle it? Come on, man. Open the door. There's socialist pigs in a deal patriots who put this world together. What's wrong with you? Now, that last video was shot by Damon Beckley, who was found guilty of obstructing the Electoral College certification and civil disorder by a federal judge, per CNN. Meanwhile, the White House has slammed former President Donald Trump for referring to January 6 rioters as hostages during a speech over the weekend. Trump called on President Biden to, quote, release the J6 hostages, and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded, it is grotesque to make those kinds of comparisons. I will just again note that if Donald Trump considered them hostages or political prisoners and this was so important to him, he could have freed them while he was still president in his last few days, as many of his very conservative supporters urged him to do so. He declined to take that action. Yeah. So make of that what you will. I, you know, I, what I make of that is that the Republican Party was embarrassed and humiliated and slinking around like a dog with its tail between its legs in the wake of, of January 6th. There's been a lot of revisionism going on right now, but a lot of folks who are also echoing that hostage language, like Vivek Ramaswamy, tweeted immediately after January 6th that it was a shameful event and the Republican Party needed to do some introspection. Now, you were here uh, all of these years later where there's this effort to rehabilitate what happened. But even, frankly, watching the video, I know we're supposed to be focused on Ray Epps calling for people to go into the uh, Capitol, but the argument is undermined by seeing a throng of people push over barricades, assault police officers, and force them their way into the Capitol. It's hard to reduce what happened on 1-6 to the actions of one man or say that his saying out loud that we should go into the Capitol and that was the clear desire and intent of thousands of people as they push past the barricades, it seems a little reductive. Well, I agree, but I, I think the criticism is that um, Democrats and the media have tried to do exactly that with respect to Donald Trump, put it all on one man. Sure. Um, when, in fact, this was a chaotic, confused day involving thousands of protesters, many of them who did absolutely nothing wrong, who were just engaging in First Amendment-protected activity, some who unquestionably violated the law, like the people we just saw on camera, anyone who knocked down barricades, fought with cops, um, smashed windows, went into the Capitol in such fashion, should absolutely have been arrested and prosecuted, and I have no opposition to that. Those people are not hostages. We must be a party, as Donald Trump conceded at one point, of law and order. Um, that is purportedly important to Republicans, so I don't have any problem with that. Um, I do understand why some—again, while still acknowledging that there is 
is no evidence that or none has been presented to me. If you have some, show it. Show us the evidence. People can't just make claims and not have anything to back it up. But I understand people finding it fishy that a man on camera repeatedly over and over again saying we should telling people to go into the Capitol, being called out. That's the funny thing, being called out by all the people around him, saying you're a, because the, the person, if you're in, you know, far right activist circles, the person inducing you to commit crimes is sometimes someone being paid by the government to do Robbie, so, as was the case in, uh, in the Gretchen Whitmer That's also what you can say about Donald right. Trump, that the person calling for people to march to the Capitol and telling them that their rights are being stripped away inside is the one that's culpable. And in defense of Donald Trump, and I think rightly so, his speech him, his, it should not be criminalized no. on the day of 1-6. So I, I just frankly don't think you can have it both ways. I agree with you. There's, a, there's an interesting parallel between how Democrats are framing Donald Trump and how Republicans are, are framing Ray Epps. But I think it's, it's appropriate in neither case to say that we need to throw the book on the person who happens to have been loudest and caught on camera, well, just, as opposed to the people who actually committed the violence, who are serving sentences on average of only two months. Prosecutors have treated Ray Epps with kid, I mean, in the in the in the document for sentencing, they talked about how his life was ruined and how it's so sad for him. I mean, it was. And, I mean, it was. And he's, not, he's not serving a day in 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 prison. But do you deny that he has been the focus of a multi-year right-wing conservative attack that's been uh, very prominent on Fox News with people like Tucker Carlson calling him out specifically, calling him a, an op and a Fed without with that in a ways that have not been substantiated. Yeah, people by were calling him a Fed at the time, <laughs> and that people that his that he's had to had concerns about his safety and the like as a consequence of those attacks. I'm just telling you why um, many conservatives uh, have questions about his involvement and whether there was something not quite above board there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to go down that road. Not you, but if conservatives want to go down that road and play those games, because it really is identical to what's happening with Donald Trump, except at a smaller scale. And if you want to go down the path of saying that the person who was loud with their speech on the day that something happened is the most culpable, okay, as opposed to the people who actually committed the malfeasance. Ray Epps did use the words, go into the Capitol, repeatedly. Donald Trump, now, I, I think his... Rhetoric was reckless and inflamed the crowd, and you can assign moral blame to him for what happened. He did not he did not instruct the protesters to engage in violence or to enter the Capitol. He said, I mean, it was more vague than that. I'm not making excuses for it. You can think it was totally inappropriate. I certainly do. You can think it was an impeachable offense. But he did not specifically say, go into the Capitol premises. He asked his people to march to the Capitol. He said he would be joining them, didn't do that. But uh, uh, he, he, he said uh, he did not, he, he did not, he said we should project strength. He did not, he, 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 in, with using the direct language that Ray Epps did, tell people to go in. So anyway, we will be continuing to litigate um, January 6th for some time to come, I suspect, um, as it is the focus of all these Donald Trump-esque trials to some degree. And uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily good for the Republican Party to be backward looking toward it, but, um, but here we are. It is also the focus of so much conservative media who has made the decision, an unforced decision, a completely voluntary decision, to make the people that we just watch in those clips into heroes and to frame them as political well, prisoners. I mean, I think that's a reaction to the mainstream media's framing of January 6th as akin to, and not just the media, frankly, but actually the prosecutors of people like Enrico Tario as a kind of terrorist attack, as a psychic 
attack on the nation on par with 9-11. We watched um, uh, Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC the other day literally tearing up when forced to recall it, um, AOC crying about that day. Um, I, I, again, I don't want to—it was a very bad day. It was a very embarrassing day for the nation and for Donald Trump, and PN lawbreakers should always be held accountable. But I think a, a sense of proportion is warranted and is sometimes not there on both sides for the people talking. About. Right. Well, in this segment, we're talking about Republicans advocating for higher sentences for Ray Epps. That's the argument here, that, that Ray Epps should have a higher sentence because he's more culpable than others in this in this scenario because of the, the nature of his speech or the, the loudness of his speech that day and the fact that it was caught on camera. I, that does not sit well with me, but let us know what you think in the comment section. Stick around for more Rising after this. America's military and the U.S. government asleep at the wheel amidst these historically high tensions and violence in the Middle East. The Pentagon had a series of embarrassing exchanges with the press over the ongoing Lloyd Austin hospitalization scandal. Now, as a reminder, Austin was in the hospital for what we now know were issues related to prostate cancer. Biden and his senior officials weren't told this for days. Here's John Kirby answering a question about that. So the president has known um, for, I guess, five days now that Secretary Austin was in the hospital, but he wasn't informed why? He was not informed until last Friday that Secretary Austin was in the hospital. He was not informed until this morning that the root cause of that hospitalization was prostate cancer. Is that because the White House knew and didn't inform the president, or because Secretary Austin chose not to share that with the president? Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning, and the president was informed immediately after we were. Okay. Uh, last week, we learned that uh, Jake Sullivan, I believe, found out about um, the fact that Secretary Austin was hospitalized on Thursday morning. So just want to clarify, are you saying the president found out a day later than uh, the NSC did? No, Jake. Jake was informed, our national security advisor was informed that Secretary Austin was in the hospital and had been for some time. He found out late Thursday afternoon, and he informed, he and the chief of staff, Mr. Zients, informed the president later that evening, early that evening, not long after they learned. They informed the president directly Thursday evening. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken still on his Middle East diplomacy tour. He seemed to undermine his own administration's position over whether a genocide is occurring in Gaza. We believe the submission against Israel to the International Court of Justice distracts the world from all of these important efforts. And moreover, the charge of genocide is meritless. It's particularly galling, given that those who are attacking Israel Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, as well as their supporter Iran, continue to openly call for the annihilation of Israel and the mass murder of Jews. All express grave concern about the dire humanitarian situation and the number of civilians killed in Gaza. We know that facing an enemy that embeds itself among civilians, who hides in and fires from schools, from hospitals, makes this incredibly challenging. But the daily toll on civilians in Gaza, particularly on children, is far too high.
other countries across the world, uh, overwhelmingly outside of a U.S. direct sphere of influence in, in the global south, are increasingly also applying pressure on the Biden administration to respond to claims that there are as a genocide unfolding in Gaza. Most recently, the Indonesian president also spoke to Joe Biden, directly confronted him on this. And Joe Biden changed the subject. Let's take a look at that. Yield the floor to my friend. Indonesia appeal to the U.S. to do more to stop the atrocities in Gaza. This fire is a must for the sake of humanity. Once again, thank you for your invitation, President Biden. Thank you. Thank you. And as we met outside, as you get out of your automobile, we had a very important discussion on climate. I think the optics of that aren't great. Yeah, he didn't even... Um I mean, he should just—if he, he could defend his position, if he holds the position, um, or or change his mind, or do something to address what the Indonesian president said, he could say that uh, we also want there to be a ceasefire, but we—I, we, Biden, take the position that there can't be a ceasefire until Hamas is eliminated, um, but we're doing everything we can to urge the Israeli government to limit hostage—limit uh, um, civilian deaths. Perhaps he knows that's not a very persuasive line, or at least his, his base. Democrats aren't uh, persuaded by it. Uh, instead, he said, let's talk about the climate. Yeah. And it's worth no noting that, even though Blinken keeps insisting that there's no evidence of genocide, we will have this International Criminal um, uh, Court of Justice hearing happening uh, later this week, where this exact issue will be lit litigated. Before, up until this point, a number of experts, including uh, Mo Kyber, who very notably stepped down from his position at the UN, where he had spent uh, a 20-year career litigating exactly this question of genocide all across the world, said he had to leave the UN because of their failure to recognize one of the clearest, if not the most clear-cut case of genocide that he had ever seen, pointing out specifically that normally the hardest part of proving genocide is proving a country's intent. It's not necessarily about the number of people that are killed or things like that, but it's about whether the country has a state of intent of conducting a genocide, um, obliterating a population. And in the case of Israel, there have just been so many high-profile members of the Israeli government, including Benjamin Netanyahu at the very top, who have engaged in rhetoric that is expressly supportive of either genocide or ethnic cleansing, that that is the is, is a uniquely easy part of this case to prove here uh, for uh, South Africa, of course, who brought this petition. So it is interesting from a political perspective to see the, the Biden administration's choice here to respond to a direct appeal from another head of state by saying, by the way, climate is cool. By the way, we had a nice chit-chat about the climate. Blinken continuing to insist that there's absolutely no humanitarian concerns here and saying, well, Hamas is the real problem. That can be fine. There's no, there's no precluding. Well, I don't know. He's not saying there's no humanitarian concerns. He's, well, sure. he's expressing fact, he's, he's that they do that have humanitarian, humanitarian concerns. concerns. But what is the source of the humanitarian concerns? To acknowledge a humanitarian concern, but then say, well, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep creating a humanitarian crisis as long as Hamas exists is kind of an admission that you are helping to perpetuate. You are contributing to the genocide or the humanitarian uh, abuses that are ongoing and willing to do so with impunity because you think that re that that response, that excuse, holds up. 
And I think what we're seeing from polls and the dissatisfaction of Biden's base, as they say increasingly that they're not willing to vote for him, is that while that excuse might hold up in a press briefing room or um, in the United Nations, where America has veto power, it's not holding up with the electorate. Yeah, it's clearly making him uh, much less popular with his base, uh, with young people, um, hurting him uh, perhaps with some minority groups. So he's going to have to either change course or come up with a more compelling answer, or certainly not just dodge to climate um, when he's when he's asked about it. It seems like a real problem for the president. What do you make of the Lloyd Austin uh, rigmarole? It does seem like a sort of unforced error. And is the implication that Biden really is asleep at the wheel if he doesn't know um, that, you know, cabinet members that are pretty important to wrestling with the escalating violence in the Middle East are incommunicado and not at their post. But it wasn't just Biden. It was the entire administration. No one knew that this was happening. Uh, people directly um, under Lloyd Austin. So this isn't actually a situation where you can chalk this up to, you know, is Biden too old or sure. too out of it or something? No one knew. Um, that was, it seemed, this seems like mostly on Lloyd Austin. This was a choice he made to keep this um, very quiet. Um, it, it's not clear why. I, I mean, you know, people can be in even our public officials entitled to some level of privacy about their medical situation, but his his uh, his um, underling who took over thought he was on vacation, didn't even know there was a medical issue, and this is you know we're in a we're in very volatile times as everyone uh, is recognizing. So it seems very weird. Um, I think you're right that unforced error is the exact terminology I would use as well. And I, I think the decision not to punish him at all for this is, frankly, a little suspect. Well, what kind of punishment is there? I mean, dismissal. <laughs> Replacement. I, I don't know that I would expect that to be the outcome. I think that for other reasons he shouldn't be in this post, namely that he's gone through the Raytheon revolving door, and we have a Secretary of Defense who has charitably, what would mm -hmm. charitably descri be described as divided uh, interests and priorities here. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is— this is what it feels like is probably some discomfort about being public with a particular kind of cancer that is stigmatized and stigmatizing. Um, and so I appreciate as a human being on a human level why you wouldn't want that to be national news. But at the same time, that's the job. Um, and it seems like one more piece of evidence, an amounting pile of mm. evidence, that there's something really amiss in the Biden administration um, and that they do not have their ducks in a row. We'll see if that has any longer term political implications as we head into this election year with uh, primaries weeks away. Weeks away. Uh, so stick around. More coverage of that. More rising after this. A new bombshell public filing alleges financial and sexual impropriety by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, the lawyer responsible for prosecuting former President Donald Trump's Georgia election interference case. Now, the filing alleges that another prosecutor in the Trump case named Nathan Wade paid for lavish vacations that he took with Willis using Fulton County funds that his law firm received from the DA's office. County records show that Wade has received nearly $654,000 in legal fees since January 2022, authorized by Willis. Here's a bit more reporting from Fox News. The sex scandal is rocking President Trump's case in Georgia. The Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney, Fannie Willis, has been accused of appointing her lover as a special prosecutor in the case against Donald Trump. DA Fannie Willis is responsible for taking Trump's mugshot. 
also allegedly financially benefited from hiring her lover, Nathan Wade, on that Trump case. This is according to a motion that was just filed by Wade, the co-defendant. Now, who is this romantic partner who Fannie Willis hired? He was just a private attorney who's never even tried a felony case. Even the Times says he has, quote, limited experience trying high-profile cases. But get this. Fannie's alleged lover has been paid nearly a million dollars in legal fees already. The motion was filed on behalf of former Trump campaign official Michael Roman, who's looking to get his charges dismissed, and for Willis, Wade, and the entire DA's office to be disqualified from further prosecution of the case. Willis's office has denied all wrongdoing. That hasn't stopped Republicans from trying to spin gold from the drama. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee took it a step farther and alleged the Biden White House was even involved. She posted a copy of the alleged invoices on X, writing Fannie Willis's alleged romantic partner slash special prosecutor coordinated with the White House while building the political prosecution of Donald Trump, all on the taxpayer dime. See for yourself. The invoices show Wade's office met with the White House on two occasions, once in May of 2022 and then in November of 2022. Uh, so Jesse Waters there is correct. I looked up this New York Times story and it does begin that it seemed an unusual choice when Willis um, hired uh, this Nathan Wade figure. Um, other news sources um, that I have looked at, you know, just news reporters have you know, seems to suggest that there is probably some merit to the, that there's a romance between these two figures. Um, so that's, that, that's not just some like wild um, um, libel being practiced here. Um, so, so it is potentially, I think, an ethical matter. Um, in fact, uh, it, it says that Fannie Willis was served um, papers by Nathan Wade's wife, who he's going through a divorce proceeding with, and she's been asked to subpoena, she's been subpoenaed to participate in that legal action. So clearly something is going on here, and we're going to find out whether there was, in fact, some ethical violation of her choosing um, this person that she appears to be involved in. Now, whether that means these cases all get thrown out or it helps the legal defense of Trump or anyone else very much remains to be seen. Yeah, that's but, very um, much wishful but thinking. There is a, yeah, <laughs> but there's a, there is a there there to, the, to, to what they're raising. Yeah, so the allegation uh, is that uh, Willis has benefited personally from uh, the not only just his salary, which I, I think that making salary determinations, you have to just look at what the going rate is. People are often shocked and dismayed by legal salaries, but a high-profile case, I don't think the issue is his his raw salary, but the allegation that they're making is that because they are alleged to have gone on trips together that he paid for, that that constitutes a kind of a kickback. My bigger concern is that she seems to have hired someone for a very important high-profile case that seems to be not especially qualified. And frankly, this might be a boon if if the result is that he is no longer a part of this case and instead of him, someone who is much more qualified to prosecute the case is actually brought in in his stead. Yeah, she uh, apparently described him as a trusted friend and mentor in 2022 mm -hmm. and that he was willing to take the job and more seasoned prosecutors were not. But again, this is why there have to be careful ethics around romantic entanglements because one's judgment in who is the most qualified or who's the best fit for a job can be very much 
affected by having an amorous engagement with that right. person. Now, the uh, filing here uh, accuses them of having gone on multiple cruises together and other trips that he paid for. It's worth noting that those claims were not substantiated in the filings, um, but, uh, you know, that, mm -hmm. that is ostensibly uh, forthcoming. Um, Willis has declined uh, through a, a spokesperson to comment on this for this Washington Post reporting, at least. Um, but it is also interesting, as you alluded to, to note that some of this information came out because of um, fi uh, divorce filings uh, between Wade and his estranged wife. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly—this development might not— um, end up ultimately hurting the case against the Trump or anyone else very much, but it, it certainly doesn't—it certainly is not good for the prosecutors. No, it's embarrassing. Um, it is embarrassing. How Democrats They're going could to let have this to, happen, yeah. given the like political investment they have in this case, in the Georgia case specifically, because that's the case that even if Trump wins, the most he solid can't case. dismiss. And um, it is— It's not a federal right. case. And it's, in some ways, the case they're going to com over. compile the most— Evidence for because of because of they charge so many people, many of whom have already provided testimony against Donald Trump. So it is interesting. I mean, this guy is going to end up. I'm going to predict it right now. Be becoming not involved with the case anymore. Uh, it's it's going to get handed off to someone else. And that you know, whenever you do a move like that, there's always you're you're. I mean, you're harming your own case. You've already showed your cards in some ways. Um, the new person is going to be under a cloud of scrutiny. Is going to have to play catch up. So. Um, yeah, this, this was a, a mild bit of good news for uh, for Donald Trump and uh, everyone else being charged. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. Democrats are not—they cannot simultaneously frame the stakes of this election as being about democracy and focusing on how important these lawsuits are, and also let them falter in these completely— Right. Predictable and unavoidable way. You know who would be the best person for this case? My new boyfriend. It's—I'm it's it's sorry, it's outrageous. <laughs> With all of the— relevance, all of the importance, the crucial nature of this thing, to have allowed Willis to put forward that excuse in the first place that more qualified prosecutors weren't willing to take this case. We're, you're expected to believe United States of America, with its 330-odd million people, that there wasn't a single prosecutor. This isn't like Donald Trump Ruli Giuliani or some of these people who have been accused of criminal wrongdoing, not being able to find uh, prosecutors, uh, uh, lawyers for their own cases, people who have failed to pay lawyers in the past, having trouble getting sure. lawyers to represent them. This is a high-profile prosecution of the former president of the United States, where there is a plethora of evidence that demonstrates that, at very least, he leaned on people like Raffensperger to, quote, find the votes. This was a substantial, meaty prosecution that I imagine thousands of highly qualified prosecutors would have, would have been champing mm -hmm. at the bent, be, uh, bit to take on, and that there was not more scrutiny when Willis put, to, put forward the excuse that I hired my longtime friend and mentor who has no experience in prosecuting cases, much less these kinds of cases, because no one else in the United States of America would take it on. My goodness. We just did a segment talking about the Biden administration being asleep at the wheel. This is more evidence that the Democrats are, frankly, just adrift. Well, I totally agree. You know, it's interesting always what stories of this nature get noticed or picked up by mainstream media. So it's being covered now because there's a court filing about it that the Trump people discovered it, and Michael Roman, and is using this in the case. You know, there's been a lot of reporting on— Fonnie Willis, she's been subject to a lot of media scrutiny. There's been a lot of profiles of her. Some of which I would note is, I think, not 
legitimate and very much in bad faith. What do you mean? Some of the profiles of her. Um, there, ha as you point out, there has been a practice of, for example, uh, when there, I've noticed when uh, the Post or some other right-leaning um, um, outlets do a profile on someone who the audience, the conservative-leading, you know, a liberal-leading person that a conservative-leading audience is not going to like. You can't say in the in the meat of the text anymore. This person is black because what relevance is that to the case? But there's inevitably a photograph of them. Inevitably, if the person involved is is a black person. The same thing was done in a recent New York Times article where they were talking about the Harvard board uh, in the Claudine Gay fiasco. One of the board members is Ken Chenault. He was alluded to as a former CEO of American Express, but the implication isn't necessarily from his name or his position that you would expect him to be black. He was the one member of the board that was pictured in the mm -hmm. New York Times article. So there, I, I, th I do think there has been an undue kind of focus on the credibility, the um, uh, uh, eligibility of certain members that are involved in this prosecution that is perhaps driven by factors that aren't their actual behavior. This is not one of them. Yeah, what, what I meant was it is perhaps just notable that in all the scrutiny and profiling of this person, there was not enough, it was not discovered that she's going on dates with, she's going on cruises with the guy she picked to be the prosecutor. Yeah, but I completely Maybe that's not that. discoverable, but I don't know. I, I, I accept that, but for me, the problem is. The much more serious problem, the red flag should have been that someone who had no experience in this matter right. was put in this position. And, and we, something that we haven't right. and, said and then before. You might, and, and then you might expect— like, And again, then you look, ask why. Right. And, and then all of this right. should—that's why I'm saying and, it's the red—it yeah. should have been the red and flag. And none of that came out. The mainstream media didn't do any—no no media organization did any of that work. Odd. That's yeah, and to be clear, the whole point of a special prosecutor is to have someone with some independence from the rest of the prosecutor's office. Uh, so there's not a conflict of interest. So this is a significant problem. It is a significant problem. And hopefully, I think the silver lining on this for Democrats should be that you actually have an opportunity now to get someone in here who knows better what they're doing. More Rising right after this. Could we finally be seeing some accountability and contrition from Dr. Anthony Fauci? The first day of Fauci's marathon questioning session in front of the Congressional Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic is any indication? Probably not. During a seven-hour closed-door session, GOP lawmakers say that they grilled the good doctor on his previous testimony, asserting the NIH does not fund gain-of-function research. Fauci defended those statements and testified that he signed off on foreign and domestic NIAID grants without the reviewing the proposals and was unable to confirm if NIAID has any mechanisms to conduct oversight of foreign laboratories that it funds. Mm. On top of that, new reporting indicates that the scientists at the center of the lab leak met with NIH officials during, including Dr. Fauci, in June of 2017. Reporter Emily Kopp writes that Wuhan Institute of Virology senior scientist Xi Zheng Li passed a security screening to visit NIH staffers in June of 2017, where she gave a presentation about novel coronaviruses. EcoHealth Alliance arranged the meeting. President Peter Daszak was also present. Here now to discuss her bombshell report and what Fauci knew, according to newly uncovered emails, is reporter with Right to Know, Emily Kopp. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what do we think was actually asked and answered in this closed-door session? And my 
main area of interest now is whether Fauci had to um, answer questions about um, information uncovered, I, I believe, by you, that, in fact, in, in grant proposals, the fact that the research was going to be done in Wuhan was disguised from approval boards, um, and there were, you know, some notes there from EcoHealth Alliance-affiliated people saying that, you know, we don't, it'll, it'll trigger too many red flags if we say we're going to do the research in Wuhan, but once we get the grants approved, we can do just that. Did Dr. Fauci, do you think, have anything to say about that? Well, so as you mentioned, this was a two-day closed-door marathon transcribed interview. Fauci did agree to testify before the full committee publicly later this year. Um, and I, I certainly hope they ask about my reporting on that. But it's clear from the um, statements we have from the committee so far that he was grilled on what oversight mechanisms NIH has regarding um, the foreign labs that its grantees work with um, and that those regulations are very much lacking. Um, a few other sort of takeaways from the notes that we have from the committee is that Fauci said that the lab leak theory is not a conspiracy theory, which contrasts with many of his other public statements and many of the statements of the virologists who worked with Fauci early in the pandemic to downplay the possibility of a lab leak. Um, and and so, so that's quite interesting. He also said, I don't recall a hundred times. Of course, it follows him saying, I don't recall um, nearly 200 times in a, another sworn testimony um, in 2022 before attorneys general. Um, so, you know, we'll have to wait for the transcript um, for more details, uh, but um, look forward to that. Um, yeah, Robbie, as you mentioned, I reported last week or the week before that um, regarding a grant proposal proposed by EcoHealth Alliance, this intermediary between NIH and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, submitted a grant proposal to the Pentagon saying that um, it intended to do research in the United States under a relatively rigorous biosafety level at a BSL-3, um, but notes I obtained on earlier drafts uh, showed that this was um, a lie meant to mislead the U.S. government into thinking that the research would be more safe than it really was. And they, in fact, intended to do it in Wuhan at a lower biosafety level in which respirator masks are not required and ventilation conditions are not as rigorous, essentially in order to save on costs. But they wanted to make the grant makers more comfortable, quote unquote, so they um, misled them in their grant application. And this is important because this particular grant proposal, many scientists say, lays out a blueprint for creating COVID-19 in the lab. It uh, calls for the collection of SARS-related coronaviruses and the insertion of fear and cleavage sites at the S1, S2 juncture in the spike protein. And of course, now, you know, we've all experienced a pandemic of a SARS-related coronavirus with a fear and cleavage site at the S1, S2 juncture. So that's highly relevant information for the origins. And I'm sorry, was Fauci asked about that that document, that that reporting? Because it's one thing to answer, I, I, I do not recall to uh, questions about which there isn't a, a, do a documentary record of him having been involved with those decisions. But this seems like something that documents reveal, prove that there was this intent to hide the risk level that was associated with these Chinese labs that were likely to be where this research took place. 
I wish I could say definitively. Unfortunately, all we have is um, statements from the committee. We don't have the transcribed interview yet. My understanding is that they'll use the the um, transcribed interviews behind closed doors and the public hearing later this year to put together a report for the public. Um, so, so I hope so. I, it definitely seems like they asked about um, just the complete lack of adequate regulations when it comes to gain of function research, as well as um, whether or not he perjured himself when he testified to Senator Rand Paul in 2021 that the U.S. did not fund gain of function research in Wuhan. Of course, now that has, as you mentioned, Bree, been proven unambiguously true um, that the or or false, sorry, um, that the that um, the U.S. did indeed fund gain of function research in Wuhan, and um, Fauci's testimony was was false. Um, so that's another thing that I kind of I'm looking forward to seeing in the transcript and in the public hearing how he will justify that false testimony um, and how his legal team plans on helping him avoid a, a perjury conviction. What else can you fill us in on regarding Xi Jinping's visit? to the United States, um, how that was cleared, and how, if at all, that should inform our knowledge of, of the plan to do the research in Wuhan and whether it was going to be safe? Yeah, so I think um, the timeline here is really important. So we reported that um, Fauci and the uh, staff at his institute met with Peter Dazik, the head of EcoHealth Alliance, and Xi Jingli, senior scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, in June 2017 and October 2017. And by December 2017, a few months later, the NIAID, Fauci's institute, decided to um, to or was very influential in helping to get rid of the pause on gain-of-function research, just to sort of um, research to enhance the danger of viruses that the EcoHealth Alliance and the Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing. Um, so, so I think that timing is key. Um, you know, Dazik is known as sort of being a very charismatic person, um, as well as she. And so whether they influence that decision, I think, is, um, is something that we should consider and maybe ask Fauci about. Um, and I think it's also an open question how Xi Jingli managed to pass a, a security clearing to visit, um, you know, a U.S. agency, because we know from declassified intelligence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was working with the P PLA, the Chinese military, since at least 2017. So that sort of raises yet more questions about the lack of regulation when it comes to this very high-risk virology and the biosecurity risks associated with it. Um, why was that not a red flag for, um, for the NIAID back in 2017? Hmm, sounds like there can be some really uh, fruitful testimony coming out of this and the hearing that's coming later this year. Thank you so much for staying on top of it, Emily. Thanks, guys. Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard announced a new exclusive video series on X with Elon Musk to defend free speech. Let's watch. Free speech is something that a lot of us have taken for granted throughout our lives. It is fundamental to our rights that we have as Americans. Unfortunately, we live in a time where free speech is under attack. 
lifting up your voice in dissent or challenge or questioning or even having a dialogue and debate is not only discouraged, it can be cause for retaliation or cancellation or censorship. We must defend our right to free speech by using it. I'm excited to announce today a partnership with X, a platform that under the leadership of Elon Musk not only uh, defends free speech, it is celebrated and encouraged. So I'm looking forward to launching some new projects with them where I'll tell the stories and tell the truth about what's happening here in our country and around the world, the truth that most often those in power don't want us to hear. But is X really a bastion of free speech? In response to the announcement, recently ousted MSNBC journalist Mehdi Hassan wrote, hilarious that she's announcing this on the exact same day that a bunch of left-wing journalists, remember the left, which she used to be pretend to be a part of, were just suddenly suspended without any explanation or due process by Twitter. A ban wave yesterday allegedly hit a number of prominent left-wing journalists and uh, other accounts, according to X News. There's been no explanation given. Investigative journalist Ken Klippenstein wrote on X, as a journalist, I've been matrix-dodging layoffs my entire career. Elon isn't even on the top 10 of threats to my survival. Had the ban stuck, and I imagine it will eventually, I would have just migrated to my newsletter. Eyebrows were raised as anti-Israel commentator Jackson Hinkle tweeted, Why are accounts critical of Israel being suspended, Elon Musk? To which Musk responded directly, saying, I will investigate. Obviously, it is okay to be critical of anything. It's just not okay to call for extreme violence, as that is illegal, apart from the U.N. exemption, where officials from countries recognized by the U.N. can say what they say at the U.N. For the record, I do not personally agree with your views. Nonetheless, the point of freedom of speech is allowing those views you disagree with to Express those views. Journalists at the Texas Observer Stephen Monticelli tweeted, it appears that the reason I was unbanned is that Elon Musk responded to a post by Jackson Hinkle, a far-right influencer who regularly posts misinformation and conspiracy theories. This website is absolutely cooked. Now, senior staff writer at Mint Press News, Alan McLeod, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Alan. It's great to be back with you. Now, you were among the band. Can you let us know if there were, were any insights um, from your personal experience that can help us understand how this happened and why? You know, honestly, even after the fact, I'm none the wiser of what happened. Uh, I went to, I was going to bed and then suddenly I got some texts and calls telling me that uh, my Twitter account appeared to have been suspended. I went on there and checked, and sure enough, I did have a direct message from uh, the Twitter support team saying that my account had been suspended. They gave no reason. They did tell me, however, to look in my inbox. And when I went to my email inbox, there was uh, nothing there whatsoever. So I was absolutely in the dark as much as anyone else was. However, as you said, there were a whole load of prominent left-wing, anti-war, anti-establishment figures who seem to have got caught up in this dragnet at the same time. So that really suggests that this was a political decision. As you heard, uh, Elon Musk personally intervened in this. And uh, recently I received a message from support at x.com. It was equally uh, blasé and uh, content free. All it said was, hello, we are writing to you to let you know that we've unsuspended your account. We're sorry for any inconvenience and hope to see you back on X soon. Thanks, X support. 
And so really, quite frankly, when we look at this, uh, we're none the wiser of what happened. However, in this in this milieu that we're in, where people critical of the establishment seem to be deranked, demoted, delisted, and sometimes even deleted, many of us have been worrying about our accounts for a very long time, especially because nowadays social media is the real lifeblood of journalism. It's how we contact readers, it's how we try and build a base. And so if we do get zapped off of these huge platforms, that's an enormous uh, threat to, for, to free speech all around the world, because this is not just a U.S. problem, but it's a global one. Hmm. So Elon obviously interfering here to bring back the accounts um, suggests to me that he was not aware of them being taken down um, in the first place, uh, conceding this you know, violates his ethos for the social media site. He has made these lofty commitments to, um, to free speech. Um, do you have any theory or idea that you know, perhaps um, your account and all these accounts were flagged. There was a there was reports made by someone who's probably has a political disagreement with um, all of you fine folks, and maybe that was heated without any without a second thought. Do you have any speculation you can give us on what really took place? Well, if you want me to wildly speculate, I did write an article a couple of years ago called "The Federal Bureau of Tweets." Twitter is hiring an alarming number of FBI agents. And what I did there was I went through uh, the LinkedIn profiles of many of the senior Twitter staffs, specifically the ones that were involved in content moderation and trust and safety. Now, to be fair to Mr. Musk, this was before his time, before he bought the platform. But what I found was that there were literally dozens of former FBI agents who had been plucked from uh, the Bureau or other three-letter um, three-letter uh, organizations in DC, like the NSA or the CIA, and had been parachuted in to the top echelons of Twitter, where they were actually influencing what everybody in the world sees and, crucially, what they don't see online day after day. And so, of course, when you have people like that, those sorts of high state officials being dropped into uh, important, uh, important media outlets like Twitter, they are going to see the world in a very black and white way. And so people who are critical of the US government, the Western establishment, the war, the military industrial complex, uh, the corporate state that we live in right now, are obviously going to be uh, treated with suspicion, if not outright hostility. And so I think generally people like me, Ken Klippenstein, Rob Rousseau, and many of the people who are banned really are uh, walking on this sort of uh, political third rail where we're not really sure where the boundaries are of what we can say, and at any time we can get zapped off without any mention. And it was only thanks to the fact that so many people kicked up such a big stink about this that Elon Musk himself heard about this and that we were reinstated. Right. And and all of those um, former federal agents or people who had uh, whom federal agents had easy access to at so at Twitter was uh, was a huge problem that obviously we've talked about in the context of the Twitter files and all of those disclosures. Um, Elon taking over Twitter was supposed to be, uh, I, I think he articulated that he wanted to address a lot of those problems. Obviously, they were, there were mass firings at the company. Um, some of us hoped that that was involving many of the people who had made uh, questionable moderation decisions. So what does this say to you about the state of free speech on the platform at a time where people like Tulsi Gabbard and even Don Lemon, we reported on yesterday, joining to launch their own shows on what they describe as the number one free speech platform in the world. 
I'm honestly not convinced that so much has changed. I think when we look at uh, what Musk has brought to Twitter, there's a lot of change, but there's also a lot of continuity as well. And ultimately, Twitter was already controlled by billionaires before Musk, and it now is uh, controlled by Musk again. And although he's talked a very good game about free speech, when you look at a lot of the decisions he's made uh, in terms of advertising, we can see that free speech isn't his primary goal. I'm thinking, of course, about how he complied with um, with requests from the Turkish government or the Indian government to censor critics of those particular regimes, which goes completely against his free speech ethos. And so ultimately, for Musk, I think a lot of the time, the bottom line is uh, the profit and loss margin. And he's got all sorts of problems trying to make Twitter uh, not only uh, profitable, but even just breaking even. And so uh, annoying advertisers or annoying big governments is obviously going to uh, happen quite often. And if that clashes against free speech, I think uh, we've seen that Musk might take uh, might look at his pocketbook before he uh, really thinks about his ideals, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a good point. And not to mention another example there, uh, that after he returned from his trip uh, to visit Israel, he, he posted on Twitter that there was this new policy. He said, as I said earlier this week, decolonization and from the river to the sea and similar euphemisms necessarily imply genocide, he said, and that clear calls for extreme violence are against our terms of service and will result in suspic suspension. With that in mind, it is not surprising that so many um, uh, advocates uh, for the rights of Palestinians and people who have been critical of Israel, as it's been accused of conducting a genocide in the region, are the ones that have gotten suspended. One last question. I just wanted to know what you made of um, uh, the Squirrel account, one of the, the suspended accounts, uh, accusing Bill Ackman as being the, the reason why these suspensions happened. Um, Bill Ackman, of course, being a multi-billionaire hedge fund uh, manager who has been pushing the uh, ouster of a clotting gay and who is currently defending his own wife against numerous and pretty serious plagiarism accusations. It's difficult to say, you know, Bill Ackman is a very powerful man and he is in some extremely hot water. He's made himself look like a complete fool, quite frankly, uh, attacking uh, gay, but when his own uh, partner is involved in similar plagiarism uh, attempts, or sorry, accusations, I should say. Uh, one thing I would say is I have never tweeted about Bill Ackman, so I'm not really sure why I'd be on the list, but I'm sure that, quite frankly, a lot of people at Twitter senior management don't like me because I have written quite a lot of negative articles about Twitter in the past. Ultimately, though, this really shows one of the main problems with our media right now, and that is the fact that uh, billionaires control it. When you look at the biggest uh, outlets in the US, they're all controlled by oligarchs, whether it's Jeff Bezos, who owns Twitch and the Washington Post, or we're talking about Twitter with Elon Musk, or the huge amounts of uh, media that people like Bill Gates and uh, other uh, super wealthy billionaires in the US either own or control. This is a gigantic problem for us because when we live in a, in a society that is dominated by the ultra wealthy, we need to have a media that is capable of looking at these, uh, looking at these individuals and these structures, critiquing them and challenging them. And if that's not possible, even on places like social media, which are supposed to be an antidote to the tired old system of corporate media, then we are in massive trouble, Brianna. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Glad you've been mine.
have some new border news to get to. First off, some New York City high school students will be getting 2020 flashbacks as they'll be forced to return to virtual learning. Why? Well, their school is being used to shelter migrants. Students at James Madison High School giving up their classroom for thousands of asylum seekers following an intense storm that destroyed the shelter the migrants were being housed in. Next up, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas allegedly admitted the current release rate for migrants crossing the border illegally is above 85% per three Border Patrol sources. The DHS not commented on that matter yet. And then President Joe Biden has asked Mexico for help to halt the record surge of the migrants, per NBC News. Mexico, however, has its own list of wants in return. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador calling on the United States to approve a plan that would delay, uh, deploy $20 billion to Latin American and Caribbean countries, suspend the U.S. blockade of Cuba, remove all sanctions against Venezuela, and grant at least 10 million Hispanics living in the U.S. the right to remain and work legally, according to NBC News. A 400-person brawl broke out outside a New York City migrant center this past weekend, and one person allegedly tried to skip the line. According to the New York Post, one man punched the line cutter and fell to the ground as another joined the physical scene. Absolutely. So um, first, the, um, the school story is very interesting. I saw a lot of complaints about that. Um, from my standpoint, not so much on the need to house the migrants, um, given the storms that were going on, but um, the <laughs> return to virtual education for the students disrupted by that. Um, I saw Nate Silver tweet, and this has basically been confirmed by our experience during COVID, that virtual learning is like uh, not having learning at all. So you might as well just say classes are canceled for that day. Um, it seems uh, a lot of people very upset about that kind of disruption. Like, oh, it's no bother, no worries, we can just do virtual education, even though we know that doesn't work for a whole, for an extraordinary number of students. Robbie, it was for like one or two days. The, the original evacuation plan, to be clear, there was a strong winter uh, storm of 60-mile gust, wind gusts. The camp, the tent camp where these people were staying, including kids and pregnant women, got destroyed. And in anticipation of it getting destroyed, they had an emergency evacuation into this school, which is a designated evacuation center. The, the immigrants were supposed to be out by the next morning. There were obviously logistical concerns in getting a new place for them to go, and so they were delayed. And so they had remote working, uh, remote schooling for a day. So I appreciate your concerns about long-term COVID-era schooling. This is not a return to 2020. It's an emergency situation where to save the lives of people who were confronted with a winter storm, they took emergency shelter in a school. Here's a comment, and I know that a lot of people on the internet we're very upset about it, but some very good reporting by the city of New York spoke to some students and families at the school. One 16-year-old junior named Spencer Katz said students learned about the evacuation on Tuesday afternoon and that most of the discussion focused on whether or not school would be canceled on Wednesday. He said, I was expecting some people to be racist, but I was pretty pleasantly surprised by how cool everyone was about it. Every single person I know has an immigrant as a parent or grandparent, so everyone was pretty understanding. So I would caution against using a local event where the people involved, I'm sure there were some people at the school who were irritated by it, nobody wants these kinds of disruptions, but the context of it is to prevent people from getting injured or killed during a weather event. Are we really so lacking in humanity that we're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, one day of 10th grade was, miss, was missed and, 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 and we shouldn't have that happen. Instead, we would want a pregnant woman to be caught in a tent 
in a 60-mile wind gust storm? Is that where we are? Let's just admit the classes are canceled. It's the virtual part. Like, virtual school, virtual school is a joke. We know it's a joke. They should just call it a snow day, move on. You're right, it's just one day. That doesn't matter. But the idea that school can just go virtual whenever there's some inconvenience and that's, that's no, there's no declining quality is just, is like totally contradicted by the COVID experience. Um, I've seen going to virtual for a uh, lot, for other reasons at school districts. Um, and it, this is too easily, in my view, a tool that's being deployed. Of course, we need to, we, they were not supposed to just let the migrants die in the storm. It speaks to the need to establish um, a more suitable uh, process for housing and processing and working through these claims and dealing with the migrants coming in in some kind of sustainable way. Obviously, there's a lot of frustration about that happening at the border. I don't disagree that they should have used the temporary shelter. I disagree that the idea that we, we can just say, well, it's virtual, so good. it's like the same thing. It's clearly not. We, Look, that we, we're, we've all have to recognize that virtual school is a farce. That's fine. I think it's better to be able to have virtual school than to have classes canceled at all for the day. But if you would prefer, for optics reasons, you think it validates the appropriateness of virtual schooling in a way that is destructive, to have them have simply canceled class, I don't have a bone in that fight. But I think this is a story about a community that was willing to sacrifice to save the health and well-being of others in their community. And it, it's a, it should be a beautiful story about what it can mean to, be, to come together as a country. And if we want to have a critique of why there hasn't been more, perhaps, funding allocations and support for immigrants to have a more permanent shelter, asking questions like, why were they being sheltered in these tents to begin with when there is so much vacant housing, elite, full, uh, multi-million dollar housing that sits vacant in New York City, largely because there's so many people, including foreign investors, who come in and buy up this housing stock and keep it empty. That, I think, is a productive conversation to be having. Why is the onus on school children as opposed to on people who have a much bigger capacity to absorb the cost in this kind of a crisis? But to try to pit those two vulnerable communities against each other and to try to characterize um, the response to this event as overwhelming anger when it sounds like the members of the community that were actually impacted are thoughtful about this and who see themselves as coming from a very similar immigrant tradition, like so many people in America and so many people in New York specifically being such a hub for immigration, seeing themselves in the immigrants that are having to sleep on the floor in their classrooms, not exactly an ideal scenario either, but to keep themselves from dying in a storm, I don't know. I just, I see this a little bit differently. No one was expected to sacrifice more than our school-aged children during COVID. I would agree. Let's, yes, let's find accommodations elsewhere. It's all of these supposedly empty um, office buildings or hotel buildings, maybe they can take um, uh, some migrants rather than asking our school-age children to sacrifice yet again when we know that the, this has had a detrimental impact on their educational opportunities. Uh, but meanwhile, House Republicans are reportedly plotting a swift impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas, as swing state Republicans have recently expressed openness to that idea as migrants surge across the southern border. Per CNN, Representative Anthony Desposito, a freshman congressman from New York, said, from the far right and the Freedom Caucus to those more moderate, we have all been a part of this. I think we are at a point, and I believe that the American people agree with us that Mayorkas needs to be impeached, and we need to find quality leadership to lead homeland security. 
Um, obviously, immigration being an issue that uh, many Republicans run on, that Donald Trump talks about a lot as we're going into the 2024 campaign um, cycle. Do you think um, a perceived weakness on the immigration issue um, is going to really hurt Joe Biden as long as Mayorkas remains in his position? No, I think Joe Biden's going to be much more hurt by the fact that he has continued so many of Donald Trump's policies, um, building the border wall. Um, pretty, uh, you know, aggressive, do-not-come-style uh, policies from uh, uh, his vice president, and that the part of the base that he risks losing is the part that are progressives um, and that want a humane immigration system, that want more funding for administrative law judges to actually process people who ha have a legitimate immigration claims instead of undermining the promises of our Constitution and the language em emblazoned on, this, on the Statue of Liberty that our country was once very proud of. Hmm. Um, obviously, most Republicans uh, overwhelmingly support building a border wall and more funding for border security. Uh, many Democrats are opposed. Independents somewhat split, but slightly more supportive of increased border funding, as far as this poll That's shows. important, important point. People are uh, supportive of more uh, border funding, because border funding, as I just pointed out, can be used to do things like have more staff to process these uh, various uh, immigration Well, I mean, claims. I was talking specifically about the wall, but— um, And this is a point that the White House brought up, I think, not as forcefully as it should, that Republicans are exacerbating the border crisis by blocking the funding that could go to uh, mediating this uh, crisis. I think this was about a, a week ago. White House spokesperson Andrew Bates said in a statement that Republicans have an anti-border security record because they obstructed President Biden's proposals and voted against border security funding. That's from reporting in The Hill. Hmm. Well, it is border wall funding specifically that Democrats oppose and Republicans say they support. So if you want more funding for immigration, I guess I'm not sure who you're supposed well, to. Well, Biden has, in fact, pledged to build more uh, border wall funding. In fact, he— But you think he shouldn't do that? No, I think don't think he should. But this is why this criticism is kind of absurd. The people who are mad at Biden are mad because he used executive authority to, to uh, bulldoze through certain environmental regulations so that they can continue to build Trump's border wall. Biden is literally doing everything that Trump did, what Republicans want him to do. And somehow the media framing is Trump needs, uh, sorry, Biden needs to be Freudian slip. Biden needs to be more aggressive and more conservative on this issue. At the same time, Republicans, instead of taking the win and enjoying what Joe Biden is doing and actually giving him the funding to do both continue both Trump's policies and to do, I think, progressive interventions that will have the effect of actually stemming the crisis at the border, which they say that they want, they're blocking that as well. Republicans benefit from the perception that there is a border crisis, and they will create a border crisis in order to win elections. That's the problem. perception that there is a border crisis? Yeah. I, I think it's more than a perception for I, a lot of people. I, I, I'm not saying there isn't a problem, but they benefit from that problem. So they are going to exacerbate any media around it. They want it to be a bigger problem. They want to uh, pump up the perception. People, whether or not there is one, there is one. But the point is that they benefit from the perception of there being one regardless of there, if there is, and so they will always use the same language regardless of whether or not there's ebbs and flows in the crisis, the same way that they have manifested a perception that there has been a rise in violent crime over the last couple of years when it has, in fact, gone down, a rise in shoplifting when it hasn't. Don't sit here and cite to me, Robbie, the specific stats for Washington, D.C. You've been very clear about that. But although we have not covered it on this program, it has been a major news story that crime rates have gone down across the country. Violent crime has gone down across the country, and there has been now an admission that all of the uh, media reports about the increase in shoplifting was a lie, 
that they were not true and that they were that was a, a fabrication put out by companies to disguise the extent to which they were having um, profit failures. They weren't selling as many goods and they wanted to uh, blame the closures of their stores on shoplifting as opposed to their poor performance so they could sell that story better to their shareholders. Violent crime went way up during the pandemic and immediately following. It has thankfully retreated, you're right, in most but not all major cities. Um, I don't have the shoplifting statistics handy right now. Obviously, we have seen video after video. I'm supposed to, I guess we're supposed to ignore that of um, convenience stores being vandalized um, all over California, all over major cities. Um, I don't know what the statistics are, but uh, I guess people can look that up in society. Yep, there is. Themselves. You can read a number of reports, including this one from the National Criminal Justice Association, saying that shoplifting is down the United States despite widespread threat theft narrative. It was down also reported since in last the New York year. Times. But has but increased in recent years. The council tracks 24 major U.S. cities. Overall, shoplifting incidents were 16 percent higher in the first half of 2023 than the first half of 2019. When New York City is excluded, however, reported shoplifting incidents fell over the same time period. Out of the 24 cities, 17 reported decreases in shoplifting. So what it's saying is that New York, in particular, seems to have been driving some of the. Uh, the localized spike and the perception of that there was a spike, but in fact it is down overall. Outside of New York, shoplifting incidents in major cities have fallen seven seven percent since 2019. Um, but up in New York, in D.C., and in California, yes, it is. We're a large, diverse country, and I'm glad it's not going up everywhere. Um, but you can't like gaslight people into thinking there's no shoplifting problem in the country when they can see the videos every day being posted all over social media. So decide for yourselves, I guess. That does it for us on Rising Today. Tomorrow we'll be back to give you the news we know you need. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere podcasts are as well. Bye-bye.